VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. I hope he's enjoying this miserable old day. Man, can we get a break from the precipitation? Just sasking. Um, maybe VOCM's Brian Medora will be able to tell me a little bit about why we're having so much rain of late. Is it just me? Uh, and it seems to be unusually cold. I uh, noticed, uh, you know, how Facebook likes to throw these uh, memories up at you every now and again. Well, uh, there was a memory that uh, was regurgitated to me last night uh, from nine years ago showing flowers blooming in my garden and green, green leaves and grass and everything else. It was uh, so that appears to me to have been a um, unseasonably mild November. <laughs> We're not like that now then. Uh, it seems to be cold and miserable and I don't know. Last time we had a fall like this, it seems to me that we uh, we had a really hard winter. Okay, there I said it. Sorry. <laughs> well, um, speaking of which, uh, what happens when the weather is unusually cold? And I don't know about you, but we've had our heat on for a little while now, uh, trying to get the uh, cold and the damp out of the house. Uh, but Newfoundland Power has now applied for two rate hikes over the next year or so. Uh, they're seeking a 1.5% increase effective this coming July and a further 5.5% increase in July first on July 1st of 2025. Now, all of this has to be approved by the PUB first. So I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. I'd like to hear what um, uh, the consumer advocate, Dennis Brown, has to say about that with any luck he'll call us this morning. This is coming at a time, as we all know, when we're just being crushed so it seems with extra expense and cost groceries are shockingly expensive it it boggles the mind how much uh, groceries have increased and it seems to me even from day to day you'll see huge increases in uh, groceries so uh, I'd like to hear what people have to say about that are you in support of these increases for Newfoundland Power Um, they're saying of course that they haven't all their rate applications have not resulted in any increase in base electricity rates for customers since 2016. Of course, there are other forces at play. Newfoundland Hydro, uh, in, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro will apply for rate increases. Then there's the whole Muskrat Falls component and all of those kinds of things. So our uh, electricity rates have increased over the last little while. But whether or not they're um, as a direct result of Newfoundland Power um Uh, making these applications for rate increases is a whole other story. I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Now, tomorrow is Remembrance Day. And uh, there's going to be ceremonies uh, throughout Newfoundland and Labrador to mark the uh, the service and the sacrifice made uh, by Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and others who call this place home. Um, and I'd like to hear your stories. I'd like to hear the stories, uh, your stories of service or the stories of uh, the service of loved ones in your life or people that you are remembering on this uh, Remembrance Day. Uh, share those with with us. Tell us a little bit about them. Um, I noticed uh, in recent years, especially 
through social media and that sort of thing that you're starting to see people proudly sharing the the portraits of uh, loved ones who served and uh, were lost uh, or who served and came home forever changed. Um, so share those stories with us today. Uh, the, war, the course, uh, Remembrance Day is going to be very different in St. John's this year. We have a National War Memorial, which uh, represents uh, Newfoundland and Labrador on Duckworth Street. That's undergoing renovations. Um, we're told it's going to be ready for uh, July 1st of next year, and it's going to include a tomb of the unknown soldier. But uh, th- because of all the uh, construction that's underway, and we've heard about all the disruptions that that's causing, especially for local businesses. Um, the um, Remembrance Day ceremony is going to be taking place at the Sergeant's Memorial this year here in St. John's. But if you have any uh, stories to tell us or uh, let us know what's going on in your community tomorrow, by all means, do give us a call. Well, we're going to start the show this morning with uh, Lorraine Michael on line one. Hello, Lorraine. Hello, Linda. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you very much, in spite of the weather. (laughs) In spite of the weather, yeah, it uh, certainly does affect the psyche, doesn't it? That's right. Uh, You mentioned many things there this morning, and uh, all of these things are really important. Uh, I also want to mention something that's important, why I'm calling in on Sunday, Uh, There is going to be a peaceful vigil in solidarity with the people of Gaza. It's taking place at the Colonial Building at uh, 3 p.m., and people are encouraged to bring flowers and or teddy bears to show support and solidarity with the children of Gaza. I think everybody's aware of what's, what's happening between Israel and Hamas, but caught in all of that. Um, with the assault on Gaza right now is the death of many women and many children. Almost 11,000 have been killed. The majority of them are women and children. And Sunday is a day of a peaceful vigil. Uh, And I think very fittingly happening, uh, you know, uh, on the same weekend as Armistice Day, because I think we all want peace. And right now with the situation there, Uh, We want uh, a ceasefire. We want uh, things to stop, the guns to stop, the bombs to stop, the rockets to stop, so that there can be real discussion about the situation um, in the Middle East. Um, And that's what Sunday is about, a vigil to remember those who are being killed and to call for a ceasefire. Unfortunately, Canada is not calling for a ceasefire. And when there was a vote in the United Nations on October 30th, when 120 countries called for a ceasefire, I'm ashamed to say that our country wasn't part of that. Um, so that's why I'm calling in, Linda. And uh, do you, um, I mean, what do you make of the fact that instead of calling for a ceasefire, Canada's, the words Canada uh, you, has been using is uh, humanitarian pause? A humanitarian pause is a very diplomatic term, and uh, today I understand uh, there is going to be a pause for about six hours. They're probably in the middle of that now with time difference. Uh, But with the the situation being so bad in northern Gaza, 
uh, where, uh, you know, people do not have the basic necessities of life because of the destruction of hospitals and facilities, etc. Um, the pause is just that. And uh, you will get some movement of people southward. But we, we need everything to stop, period, so that the war stops. You know, we have horrible things happening here in Canada, uh, anti-Semitic and, and uh, anti-Muslim things that are going on in North America in general here in Canada. It's happening as well. And I firmly believe that as long as the war is continuing, as, as long as the uh, the armaments are doing what they're doing, as long as people are being killed, you're going to continue having that kind of violence happening here as well in reaction. So uh, we want to stop all of it, and we have to have a ceasefire. And I really encourage people, the majority of Canadians, polls are showing that the majority of Canadians want a ceasefire. So I encourage people with my, uh, you know, my political mind, obviously, <clears throat> everybody knows my political background, to contact your MPs, to let them know that you too want a ceasefire. Um, right now, I'm aware of uh, one petition that's going into uh, Ottawa um, from uh, from the uh, NDP, from the leader of the NDP. Already, there are 200,000 names on that petition going into the House of Commons. So I really encourage people to do that. Uh, I've been contacting my MP, my Liberal MP, and I haven't heard back from her. Um, uh, which I, I'm very disappointed in. Um, and so I think the more that we let um, our government know that we want to cease fire, the more that pressure will have some effect. I firmly believe that. What role would Canada's voice have in this type of um, situation? Well, the big role obviously has to come from the United States. Um, I think any any analyst would tell people that, and, and that's uh, quite logical. The United States is the uh, is the big player here in terms of its support and not calling for a ceasefire. Uh, Canada, on its own. Um, I suppose, doesn't have a major effect, except I think ethically and morally it does. And uh, I think it would be important to the United States if one of their major partners, Canada, says that they are going to break away and and go for the ceasefire. Uh, in the past, there have been times when Canada has stood against the United States, and I think it's uh, it, it does have an effect, but uh, in getting the United States to think about what it's doing. And I, I suppose part of the difficulty here, it's so uh, such a, um, uh, how, do you, how would I put it, a, a dense uh, political situation, if you know what I mean. There's a lot of history there. There's a lot of um, background that it all comes into play. Um, but how... <coughs> Does a country like Israel um, move forward in um, trying to, I suppose, uh, root out any elements that uh, wants to see it uh, destroyed while at the same time uh, respecting um, ordinary citizens? Well, I think the first thing that Israel has to do uh, in terms of the war, uh, first of all, this moment, is to stop 
doing what they're doing because it is has been stated by the UN. It's being stated by the uh, the uh, groups who are uh, working over there. The um, things like the um, UNICEF, uh, other the human rights. Uh, uh, international groups who are totally involved, Doctors Without Borders, totally involved on the ground, are naming that, uh, according to international law, uh, uh, Israel's behavior right now is criminal. Um, outside of the current situation, uh, Israel's behavior um, with regard to its re- response to Gaza also has criminal elements, and it has been named as apartheid, that the way in which Israel treats Gaza is apartheid. That's been said, going right back to Bishop Desmond Tutu, it's been said by um, uh, human rights groups inside of Israel and outside of Israel. So the history goes right back to the Nakba back in 1947 and 48, when after the Second World War, the, uh, is the Palestinian people at that time had to move themselves out of their land. Uh, now, I, I want to mention something. There's been a reaction to a phrase that's being used by pro-Palestinian uh, people like myself right now, and it's from the river to the sea, and that's being interpreted by people um, to mean that Palestinians want Jewish people out of the whole area and they want to be taken over. They want to take it over. No. What from the river to the sea means is that Palestinians also want to be free in that part of the land, and right now they're not. Right now they're confined. Yes, you have Palestinians inside of Israel. You have Israeli Arabs who are treated differently than Jewish Arabs. You have uh, Gaza, which is uh, the the area for Palestinians to live on, has been shrinking continually since 1967, and you have the West Bank. And what Palestinians want is to be free in that whole area with the same rights and the same human rights being recognized as Jewish people. They're not asking for Jewish people to be gotten rid of. They're saying we all need to be here together freely from the river to the sea. And um, these rallies that have been held, do they do they tap into that feeling of, um, I guess, uh, horror and um, helplessness that people feel watching these kinds of, um, um, you know, extraordinary responses to these very difficult situations? Oh, I think so, definitely. Um, There have been three rallies now here in St. John's, and each rally has been larger than the one before. Uh, The one on Saturday passed. I'm told I was was unable to be there because of another commitment, but I'm told through the media that there were over 800 people at the rally here, and uh, I'm sure the message was the same as what I heard the, the weekend before. And uh, that is, we we um, condemn what started this. We condemn the behavior of Hamas, 
but we also condemn the reaction of Israel and what's happening and the horror that's happening for the people of Gaza, as I said, almost 11,000 of whom have been killed since October 7th, with the majority of being women and children. So this Sunday, it's a time to pause to have a a quiet, peaceful vigil, to remember that horror, and to, um, in a silent vigil, remember those who are being killed and those who are suffering, because the suffering is, is awful. Lorraine, Michael, I do appreciate your time. So the vigil this Sunday, Colonial Building, what time? At 3 o'clock. 3 p.m. Appreciate your call. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate your having me on. Thank you so much. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we are going to hear from you. And we are back on VOCM Open Line. We are going to go now to the caller on line two. Hello. Good morning. Hello. Are you there? All right, uh, Dave, I'm going to put... Oh, there he is. Hello. Yeah, good morning. How are you this morning? Oh, not too bad. That's good. What's on your mind? Well, um, I'm going to talk about a story that that was talked about on your program around this time last year. Okay. And uh, nothing ever became of it. But anyway, it's it's a story of... uh, Frederick Manuel Mifflin. He was a Newfoundlander, Second World War, and he was a pilot of a Lancaster bomber. And in what was supposed to be their last mission, like they had to fly 30 missions and then they were rotated out of air combat and relegated back to a safer position, right? Because they couldn't, they just, they only had one chance in three of surviving 30 missions. Well, anyway, they were on their last mission, and uh, during that mission was a night 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 raid. The bomber command they only flew at night. The Americans by day, and they were attacked by a German night fighter, and uh, their engines caught fire on one wing, and the flight engineer, his name was uh, Norman Jackson. He um, he crawled out on the wing and tried to extinguish the fires. This this is crazy stuff, right? What? That's... Yeah, he did. Oh he had to, my you know, goodness! If Patty, if Patty was here today, Patty would know what I'm talking about because nobody had the names of these people. Like they knew it was Mifflin, didn't know his first name or nothing, and nobody knew Jackson's name at all. Jack Jackson was awarded the VC. And Mifflin got the Distinguished Flying Cross. Now, what Mifflin did, which was, a Lancaster was a very, very hard aircraft to escape from. And the only chance that the crew had was to, uh, well, when they, the bailout was if the pilot stayed in control. Now, okay, let's get back to Jackson. He went out on the wing, but he was tethered by his parachute. Some crew members had deployed his parachute inside the plane so he could crawl out on the wing. Now, in the meantime, this uh, German night fighter, BF-110, made a second run. And anyway, uh, pretty well done him in. But Jackson uh, Jackson had received third-degree burns, second and third-degree burns on his hands by now. His 
parachute caught flyer, and he just fell from the wing, and that was the last crew saw him. But anyway, uh, uh, five of the crew members su- survived. There were seven seven crew members in a in a Lancaster bomber, and unfortunately, uh, Mr. Mifflin, Frederick, he didn't survive, and I believe the tail gunner didn't survive. But the other the other the other five guys uh, survived, including the flight engineer who went out on the wing. <laughs> Because uh, when they they were taken prisoners of war, and they went to a hospital in Germany, and uh, the daughter crew members couldn't believe it when they saw when they saw uh, flight engineer Jackson was laying there in hospital. He'd survived. But anyway, he was awarded the Victoria Cross, and they, this was supposed to have been their last mission. And as for Jackson, his wife had been in labor. He didn't have to go on this flight, not just the fact that his wife was in labor, but that she uh, that he'd already completed his 30 missions because he'd flown with another crew previous to joining uh, uh, Lieutenant Mifflin's crew. So he didn't have to go. He only went because Band of Brothers kicked in, right? And... Uh, Anyway, that's that story. So are you connected to Frederick Mifflin in any way? No, and I can't believe in the, the time that's passed that nobody's called in, because I think he may have been from the Bonavista area. I was going to say Mifflin. Chances are good. Yeah, well, you, you would think something, because this is, this, is, <laughs> I mean, this is one of the most tragic, heroic stories of World War II, and Mifflin was right in the center of this. And he he must have stayed at the controls of this plane until his crew managed to bail out. Well, anyone involved in those uh, Lancaster bombers were of a uh, very special breed. (laughs) Um, Because, as you said, they were difficult planes to fly. Uh, They were difficult to navigate. And, like you say, difficult to get clear of. Oh, yeah. I think there may have been only one escape hatch, even. I'm not sure. But the pilot would have had to stay at the controls. And the only reason I figure Bitlin didn't get the VC is because they would have run out of VCs because that was the duty of every pilot. There was no co-pilot in a Lancaster, so they had to stay at the controls. Basically a death sentence, right, once the plane got hit. Just and, uh, extraordinary story. And uh, where did this plane go down? Well, we'll see. I'm computer illiterate, and uh, I only contacted Patty last year about this. I would have figured somebody would have gone online and really checked in depth about everything, right? So I'm guessing Germany. And I, I don't know what year or what, right? But uh, So how did you anyway, come across the information then? Over the years, just picking it up and from memory, and like a bit of a war buff, right? And I committed this stuff to memory, and... The little I did remember, I gave to my uncle just a couple of months ago, and within 24 hours, he gave me all the information I just gave you. Extraordinary. Now I knew. Yeah, so it's not hard to check into if you are computer savvy. Okay? So that's that story. Now, these are two more very important stories, but they're shorter. Okay? For for anybody, like we all know, well, not all of us, but anybody, anybody that's a war buff knows about Audie Murphy. He was a most decorated American soldier of World War II. 
but the most decorated Canadian soldier of World War II was Tommy Prince. And he was uh, he's an indigenous, a native. And why, why that doesn't come up, I mean... I mean, I mean, the most decorated soldier of World War II was Native and uh, Tommy Prince. I can't, I don't know what province, what tribe, what nation. All I can say is Canadian, most decorated. Okay, and the third one is probably the most important one. This deals with Alan Turing. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, German Enigma Code, Communications Code, Second World War. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's the man most responsible for breaking that code. Uh, I think the Bedgley Park in England. Yeah. Put together, they put together a team of uh, nerds. Code breakers, yeah. Yeah. Computers, really. They were they were living, breathing computers. Well, the, the first computer came from all of this, right? Alan, Alan Churning and this... Uh, this uh, uh, anyway... <laughs> There's a movie on. There's a movie out there now, and I think it's called The Intimidation Game. It's a darn good movie, and it's all about this, right? And it mostly centers on Alan Turing. But the way he was, I mean, this breaking this Enigma code had shortened the war, the war, some experts experts figure, by at least two years, saving thousands, maybe millions of lives, right? And he was the man most responsible. Uh, the first uh, programmable computers really came out of his thinking. And uh, at the end of the war, uh, I think in 1952, I think the British government had some concerns about uh, national security because the breaking of the, the Enigma Code was kept top secret for 30 years after the war because the British, only the Americans knew about it and the British, but the Russians didn't, and every other country in, in the world thought that this Enigma code was, Enigma machine was impenetrable, unbreakable. So they wanted to spy on all, every other country, the other countries thinking this code machine was still uh, useful, but it wasn't. But anyway, Turing, instead of being knighted, uh, he was gay. Well, they threw him in jail for, I think, two years. I I think the government figured he was a threat to security, but to use the crime of being gay, because it was a crime, believe it or not. Just imagine. Anyone. Yeah. It was a crime to be gay, and they threw him in for two years. And then I think in 1954, see, all this stuff can be verified, but like I said, I don't have a computer. But just from watching this movie, right? And I, I've, I've heard this same story from other sources. But then he committed suicide. Uh, in 1954, I think. And this is a very soft-spoken, very gentle genius and probably the most important figure of World War II with regard to uh, winning that war. So he, he was treated pretty rough. And uh, if anybody from the gay community is listening, you want a hero to gather around uh, your man, be sure. 
Okay. Well, I'm so glad, uh, caller, that you uh, you shared these stories with us, especially at this uh, at this time. Uh, I'd like to hear other people uh, what other people have to say about um, you know some of the um, uh, service uh, of loved ones in their lives, and uh, if anybody's out there who uh, is connected to Frederick Manuel Mifflin, uh, I'd like to hear from them as well. Yeah, and so would I. All right, I pr- appreciate your call today. Thank you. Well, one other thing. Just me alone. I have enough stories that Patty could have run this story for a whole week. And you should be able to dedicate a week to Remembrance Day. Just me alone. I could probably keep them going for two days. <laughs> you know, uh, there's lots of topics and all amazing and all we should remember. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Bye. Um, Yeah, for sure. And if you have any stories that you want to share, please do. And if anybody out there is connected to Frederick Manuel Mifflin, I'd like to hear from you as well. We're going to take a very short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. We had a a fast start to the show. Uh, We lost a couple people along the way. If you want to give us a call, now is a chance to do so. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And we are back on VOCM Open Line. We are going to go now to uh, Eugene Nippert. Hello, Eugene. Oh, good morning, Linda. Good morning. How are you this morning? Uh, good, thank you. Good, thank you to David, your producer, and you and VOCM for taking my call. Really appreciate it. Uh, before I get into my main topic, uh, we're talking about Remembrance Day. And uh, that story that you just had on, that, that gentleman there, my yeah. gosh, what a story. What a, what a story. story. My, oh, my. And uh, then uh, my memories comes back. Well, first of all, I want to remember all our people that's serving, has served, and still serving for our country. Tomorrow is a big day, of course, Remembrance Day. And I remember my dad that went overseas in 39, came back in 43. Uh, he survived it, of course. Thank God. Uh, but uh, he, he was telling me a story about uh, they were crossing the Gulf. And if I got this story right, Linda, because it's been a long time, uh, the caribou, the ferry crossing the Gulf got sank, right? Yeah. Oh, yes. Terrible uh, loss of life. He, he was. They were traveling behind the caribou. Yeah, when, when she got blown up, yeah. My goodness sank. gracious, yeah. Yeah, so he survived and got back, but thank God for it. So that'll, I'll be remembering him tomorrow, of course, along with everyone else. Uh, my main topic for today, Linda, is, uh, you know, I've been complaining, trying to get more done with the loose accident problems on our highways, brush cut, fencing, the list goes on, been at it for many years. And SOPEC has been too, and still is, and uh, concerned citizens that cause me all the time and concerned that there's still accidents happening. This was one of the worst years yet. We're probably an accident a day, and we've had people killed. So I got a call a Tuesday night that we, there's good news coming, and uh, Wednesday on your open line show, it was announced. And that was music to my ears and many ears that there's going to be, that the Minister uh, Abbott's office is going to take a look at this now and try to get fencing where absolutely necessary uh, and uh, something done with the growth along our highways. And what we've been asking for is grubbed off seeded so that we'd have grass instead of uh, brush and uh, they did uh, they did get in contact and i've said this many times get in contact with nova scotia and new brunswick and see how they deal with it and the deputy uh, minister has done that and found out that uh, you know it's been very successful the, the fencing that's been done up there 
And uh, so it looks like now uh, we're going to get some fencing done and, and some and the brush taken care of. And I want to uh, thank uh, uh, Minister Abbott and his department for uh, taking this serious and getting this done. Now, um, in terms of the fencing, um, how does that work? And for how long a, a stretch do you need that? I mean, the animals will cross from one area to the other because they're looking for things to eat or a mate or whatever the case may be, depending on the time of year. So, uh, I mean, they, they have their known pathways. They have their known little highways through the woods, so to speak. So how do you um, do the fencing without, like, you know, isolating populations and, and that sort of thing and causing greater problems maybe down the road? Well, first of all, yeah, uh, I, I've been, I've, I have one opportunity, uh, Frederick and the Bronzer can meet with the Department of uh, Transportation and, and Forestry and, and uh, Wildlife, uh, COD deal with it up there. What they put in, if you're talking about access for the people, that they put in gates for that, to that effect, to help with that. Uh, and uh, what they does is, is, well, the different departments come together and find out areas where it's absolutely necessary, where there's been a lot of accidents. Right now, there's about six hundred kilometers done in New Brunswick and it's got the accents brought down some nineteen ninety five percent. So uh so what they would do, say in areas like Soakbrook now where we've had three people killed in, in, in a short distance there, that area should be looked at. First of all, I was just over there and the brush needs to be cut ASAP and grubbed off. Uh and uh, we need fencing that in that area. Uh like uh, we when I started this group in two thousand nine SOPAC, like we had people killed between Bishop Falls and Grand Falls, especially just before you get to the weight scales. So they had a sensor system put in there some time ago, right, uh, when the PC party was in, in power, and it didn't work out. So uh, that needs to be fenced. That area there is, you know, is a good there's always new sightings. There have been people killed there. So areas where it's that, no, you're not going to fence the old Trans-Canada. But areas were absolutely necessary. And the big thing now is right away to start hit the brush, get it grubbed off, get it hydro-seeded so we got seed. If they'd have done that over all these years since since 2012, we got the program put in place that that was supposed to happen, we would have had a lot of the highway done now because a lot of the brush has been cut, which we're very appreciative for. I mean, we appreciate the brush being cut. But now it's back again because it wasn't hydro-seeded. I so noticed uh, areas myself traveling around uh, the summer that, uh, my goodness gracious, the, the brush was literally right up over the shoulders. It almost felt like the, in some areas, it almost felt like the, the branches were going to scrape against the side of the vehicle. Well, I use this as an example. I'm in Lewisport right now, Linda, and uh, that area between here and, and uh, the road to the Hiles, out towards 20th. I mean, that was just cut three or four years ago. And right now, that's up about eight feet. So so what happens is it's growing about three or four feet a year. And if you add that hydro seed, we'd have grass now. I mean, that's what they've done in New Brunswick, and it's working. So now that the government is listening to us, the concerned citizens, to SOPAC, and, you know, the many people that have lost loved ones or have people that's disabled and never work again, Yes, it's very important. Please start doing what we need you to do to protect us. With the 110,000 plus moves in the province, we need to be protected. And thank you to Minister Abbott and his department for taking this serious and getting this done. Eugene, thank you. And thank you, Linda. Really appreciate it. All right. Have a nice day. You too. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to go now to Anna. You're on the air. Hi, Anna. Oh, good morning, Linda. How are you today? Great. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, just a quick call. I want to call attention to, um, now that the uh, clocks have gone back, to people out walking in the evenings. 
and how it's so difficult to see them without a vest, a fluorescent vest or something on them. Oh, I tell you, it's one of my greatest fears this time of year when, uh, you know, there's so much traffic on the road and especially when it's raining and you get the glare and you get the blackness of the road and, oh my goodness, it's hard to see anything. Well, this is is what happened to me Wednesday evening. This is why I'm calling. I was, uh, you know, making the left turn there on Newfoundland Drive and it happened that the crosswalk light was on at the same time I was making my turn and I didn't see the person. Like, I, I'm, I'm glad I was driving slowly because somebody was crossing on that crosswalk and it was really, really foggy and rain and you just, I mean, you just couldn't see anyone. And I'm wondering, like, if, um, you know, for example, Memorial could be passing out fluorescent or sell them in their stores and their those fluorescent vests because there's a lot of people walking around the arts and culture university area and especially there on Elizabeth Avenue by that store and you can't see anybody and it's you know I don't know if the walkers are aware of how they can't be seen and I'm wondering like if uh, you know where VOCM is VOCM cares you could just plug in that message about being seen in the evening some kind of a slogan or something it's a great idea I I have to be honest with you but uh, uh, I guess what makes it even more difficult is uh, I don't have any coats that are not black you know what I'm saying they're all black and um, I myself picked up a little fluorescent vest at Canadian Tire it folds into my pocket so even if I'm going to the arts and culture in the evening I'll put that on over my jacket I can take it off when I get there it's just you know totally uh, it's a small jacket a small vest but you can certainly see you know if you put it on when you're walking the dog or something right that's a great idea Anna you've done your uh, great um, civic duty today I appreciate your call okay it's uh, yeah I just wanted to get it out there because you know one of these nights someone's going to get run over and I, I don't want to see that so I just thought put it out there now you know the clocks only went back there last week which seems like a, a year ago already but uh, yeah thank you very much for listening all right Anna thank you bye-bye bye-bye we're going to go now to uh, Manuel Ellis hello Manuel Oh, good morning, Lando. Uh, first of all, I thank you for taking me call. Uh, I call you about a water situation in the town of George Book Milton, where a family got no adequate drinking water and things. Okay. And Patty want me to update on where we're to, and I know it's been on the airways. I was talking to Patty uh, earlier in the week, I think, and. Uh, I know it's been on other airways, too, as well. But, uh, Linda, I want to confirm that I know the towns don't get involved in private wills, and that's all fine. Uh, what we're asking them to do are, is come down over Crown Land. This is all Crown Land. From the end of their water line on our court road to get to this family to help them get good drinking water. And I was talking to the family this morning, and they're going to bring the line, a line out over their private land to the boundaries of Crown Land. So if and when the line comes down, they can hook on. And that's where we're to with it. And the town hasn't said no to it. Uh, They are uh, looking into options to help out. And is that an LSD or a, a, a town? No, no. We're the, we're the newest, one of the newest towns uh, that got uh, elected in uh, Newfoundland Labrador. 
the government have turned down emergency funding to help this family. But no, no, listen, this is not my opinion. They're sending out a bad message to rural Newfoundland with regionalization and and things like that to join a, a regionalization, hope other problems with roads and uh, water is going to be solved the next day. No, no, it's not going to happen. And what they're doing to this family in Georgia Brook, as far as I'm concerned, is ridiculous. The government could have stepped up to the plate here, brought the line, helped the town get the line down over Crown Land so that the owners could come out over their private property and hook on. And there's health issues there, too. There's E. coli in their water that they got on their property. Uh, there's nowhere to go to dig a well. They had to test it by health, health turned it down. And they had the independent uh, firm in St. John's uh, look at it. And uh, they turned it down with other minerals in the water. So that's where I'm to. Patty want me to update. And I got really nothing to tell you, tell, uh, you that, or Patty, that uh, they have consented to come down on the Crown Land boundary. Now, uh, homeowners may have private wells, and we have got some private wells, but probably spring water, you know. But the thing is, um, this is the only household that I know about that don't have a spring well or a good well and don't have town water. And the house was built there, Linda, before, when we were on LSD, that house got started to be built. And then in 2018, we became a town. And the family have been waiting now ever since 2018, and the town I applied to the government to get monies to extend the water line. But each time... It's probably two or three times now they've got turned down. Yeah, it's difficult if it's just one household. Are there other households there in similar need? Well, no, uh, but there's potential there to to uh, to build other homes. I see, but, yeah. But, but Linda, we're asking, the, we're asking the town now to come on board, put a temporary line in till we can get the funding, and I'm sure down the road the funding will be available at some point, to put the sections line down with far higher than that, and that's in the plan. But, you know, that's not going to happen now. So we're looking for something now to be able to help that family. Now, I'm not connected with the town. I want to let you know that. I'm only the messenger. I'm only there just trying to help out and see if we can find a resolution and get get a line or something put down there where they can have sensible drinking water where it's not endangering their health. And, you know, that's that's all we're asking. All righty. Manuel, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Yes, and I thank you very much. I had to clarify that... the water line is not going in over private property. It's going down over Crown Land. We got no jurisdiction then over the over Crown Land, the part of the road, and we got really got no jurisdiction over the town water either. That's the town's responsibility. All right, appreciate this, uh, Manuel. Thank you. Yeah, you have a nice day now. All right, you too.
Bye-bye. And uh, when we come back after the break, we're going to speak with uh, Neria Aylward about the um, poverty reduction measures announced earlier this week by the provincial government. This is VOCM Open Line. And we are back. We are going to go now to the executive director of the Jimmy Pratt Foundation, Neria Aylward. Hello, Neria. Hi, Linda. Good morning. So I noticed you were at the um, announcement earlier this week. The provincial government announced a number of measures to address um, poverty in Newfoundland and Labrador. And the focus of this week's announcement was on addressing child poverty. So what's your take on it all? Well, we were one. We were really excited to hear that focus on child poverty, um, we, and a renewed focus on it as well. Um, and there's a, an interesting and very like exciting mix of initiatives that the provincial government has brought in. So, two additional cash supplements. So, the nutrition supplement for children zero to five. It used to only be zero to one. One hundred and fifty dollars a month for eligible families, which is wonderful, and a three hundred percent increase in the NL child benefit um, for children for families who qualify which is also fantastic and then we also heard on the side of programs um, that the school lunch program is going to be expanded across the province um, for all children the premier said from junior kindergarten to grade nine Um, so it's a really interesting mix of policies some of which are putting money into the hands of families with with children um, which is really effective and has been shown to really work at reducing child poverty, looking at the Canada Child Benefit and how important that's been. And on the other hand, you know, providing services that make life more manageable for families in this province, you know, because sometimes it's, you know, it doesn't matter how much money you have if there's no affordable house, if there's no housing in your community. So sometimes we have to provide those services and make sure that they're that they're there and they're high quality and they're affordable for kids. And I, so I think the, the school lunch program is a really good example of that. So um, give us some of the detail on on some of this now, because, um, of course, uh, there were a number of measures announced, but exactly how they'll work and how they'll be implemented and what the actual impact on uh, families uh, will be um, is is hard to figure out at this stage. So what will this 300 percent increase in the Newfoundland and Labrador child benefit mean? Are those set numbers? Are they numbers that are um, reflective of a, a, a person's particular circumstances how will you know in practical sense what does it mean um well linda you're really on to you know the devil is in the details with these kinds of announcements um and you know the first thing that stood out to us you know our we have a our foundation is focused on child and youth issues we've been the author of the child poverty report card in our province and so that's really the lens through which we're looking at this announcement um but, you know, so one thing that really stood up, out to us right away is the thresholds for qualifying for these benefits that are very low. Um, basically, a family of any size that has an income of over $27,000 isn't eligible for these benefits um, as it stands right now. Maybe there will be an adjustment to those thresholds. I think that, that would be fantastic. Um, maybe that's something the provincial government is looking into. It looks like they're doing a pretty thorough rehaul of income supports and maybe that'll be a part but without a change to the thresholds a lot of families who are really struggling um, won't be able to qualify for those benefits just for um, some context you know if you have a single income and you're working minimum a minimum wage job you're making just over that you're making around thirty thousand dollars a year and that by if you had like that's a that could be a family that's really struggling um, if that's the only income and you 
you have children to support. Um, and the idea that a family like that wouldn't qualify for a benefit that's supposed to be reducing child poverty seems really counterintuitive. So, you know, we're really looking forward to seeing how this is implemented and making sure that it reaches all the families who are struggling. The poverty line for a family of four in our province is around $50,000. So, you know, all of the the families below that, I, I think, really could benefit from a benefit like this. Uh, There are some changes, I understand, to income support as well. And I think we've all known someone in our lives or have heard stories in our lives of uh, people who um, are on income support and uh, have to live alone or have to pretend that they're living separately um, just to get more money for their family. Uh, So I understand there's going to be some changes to the way that uh, income support is um, provided to family units. There is. And, you know, the details haven't been fully um, haven't been fully released on that. It's not really the area of focus of of our expertise. So I wouldn't say too much about it. But, you know, my colleagues at organizations who help clients access income support seem to be very excited about the way that this is headed. I think it's going to they seem to be under the impression that it's really going to streamline things. And move us in a direction where income support isn't as punitive. It's not punishing people for the position they're in and making them demonstrate over and over their need. Um, And so, you know, the other thing that we would say from our perspective is that, you know, children are part of these families as well. And even though these programs are not um, income support is not is not under the heading of child poverty, it, it definitely affects the children in the most poverty in this province. And so anything that's making things easier for their parents, taking a bit of a burden off them, um, and, you know, letting them live with dignity will be beneficial to the children in that household. And this whole uh, breakfast and school lunch um, announcement uh, supposed to be implemented now, coming up in September for the next school year. What kind of a difference will that make? Um, It's wonderful to hear. Um, You know, and I, we and I think that school lunches provide a really, you know, different framework to what we're used to with social programs in this province. You know, it's a pay what you can't people pay what they can afford. And sometimes that's nothing at all for school lunches. It's completely non-stigmatized. Um, most of the kids are choosing to have it. <laughs> and so it's something that, you know, it reaches people where they are. It helps parents. It, it helps to secure people, you know, to make sure that they're having a nutritious lunch and, and breakfast. Um, but also I think what's one of the most wonderful things about this program is how non-stigmatizing it is. Um, there's an assumption that families can use this extra help and families are identifying, you know, what their level of need is. And so I think that provides a really great example for the way we should be thinking about the benefits that we give families. We shouldn't be expecting them to prove their need over and over again because we know that things are really difficult for families in this province right now. There's not enough childcare. There's not enough housing. The housing there is is too expensive. Um, Minimum wage is too low. It's not a living wage. So we should be starting from the assumption that it's difficult to raise a family here especially on a lower income, and that families will need that support to thrive. We heard a lot from the province, and I think rightfully so, about the social determinants of health, um, that you know, poverty is one of, if a child grows up in poverty, that's one of the largest predictors of their future health. Um, and so you know, we need to really be addressing that. It's absolutely true. So if we start from there, um, let's make sure that we're reaching every kid who needs it and not expecting you know, families to prove over and over again um, that they're deserving.
In terms of the uh, the expansion of the school lunch and uh, breakfast programs right across the province, I mean, I know this isn't your <laughs> area yeah. uh, of, of how it's going to be implemented, but, you know, to, to this day, there's uh, plenty of schools that don't have cafeteria service. So how is that going to work? Gosh, Linda, your guess is as good as mine. Like you said, it's not my area of expertise. Um, I hope that, you know, that they get that. And the devil is in the details with these kind of announcements. I think all of us are going to have to keep an eye um, and, you know, so applaud the government where they've done wonderful things, where they've set great targets. It's so exciting to see this renewed focus on child poverty um, and now keeping an eye and seeing that it gets implemented in a good way and that children and families are seeing this in their day-to-day life. Like that the people you know who have kids or if you have children, young children yourself, that that you're seeing that. Um, that's what we're really hoping we need to keep the government accountable. And Thank let's uh, let's see what those details are. Naria Aylward, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye. And we are up to news time with Brian Medore. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. And we are back on VOCM Open Line. Tomorrow is Remembrance Day. So if you have a story of, um, um, you know, the service that uh, your loved one had in uh, either of the two world wars or any other uh, war or conflict um, around the world and you want to share some of that with us, uh, by all means, give us a call. We are going now to Anthony. You're on the air. Hello, Anthony. Hi, good morning, Linda. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very good. So I'll be perfectly honest. I never call into these shows, but I just happened to overhear Miss Michaels talking this morning, and I had to call in. Okay. Um, because my blood started to boil. Um, so I just want to read one very quick line out of um, something that will uh, set the context. Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam obliterates it, just as it obliterated others before it. That is a direct quote from the the covenant of Hamas, which is the group that runs the Gaza Strip right now. So how does Israel live, let alone negotiate with a group that wants you dead? It's not possible. The horrors that um, this terrorist group Hamas uh, perpetrated against the Israeli people on the 7th of October, I mean, it was... It was medieval. So the fact that we're having this discussion in Newfoundland is is absolutely, it's mind-boggling to me. So, I mean, I respect the right of anyone to protest. Uh, It's a free country, do what you want. But I'm highly dubious. I mean, highly dubious of these protests. I mean, while Miss Michaels may think that the cause is a peaceful one, it doesn't take too much time to do a quick search on YouTube, and you will find people protesting in these apparent pro-Palestinian marches, making the most vile anti-Semitic comments. Some, like protests even in Toronto and Montreal, um, calling for the direct killing of Jews. Uh, this week, there was two Jewish schools that had bullets fired through them doors. So while Miss Michaels may think that, you know, from the river to the sea, maybe one of these hippy-dippy slogans that's all peace and love, there are many people in this world and perhaps in this province, I hope not, but perhaps, that when they say from the river to the sea, it means the elimination of the Israeli state and all the Jews that live within it. So as far as I'm concerned, the Israelis, the IDF, are doing the world's dirty work, and I wish them luck in ridding the world of a disgusting terrorist group called Hamas. But what about the 
collateral damage. I hate that term, but you know what I'm saying? All of the civilian lives that are being lost, both on the Israeli side and on the Gaza side. I mean, I think what uh, some of these some of these protests are about, or not protests, but rallies are about, is about um, somehow de-escalating this violence. Um, and I know that that's a, a, a hopeful wish. Is it a realistic one? No, it's not. It's absolutely not realistic. So here you had a, they're calling for a ceasefire. There was a ceasefire between Hamas and the Israelis, and it was broken by Hamas on the 7th of October. They had a ceasefire back in June. So basically what happened, they had a ceasefire. Hamas broke it. They ran back to the Gaza Strip with over 200 uh, hostages in tow. And then they said, oh, no, 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 we want another ceasefire. It doesn't work that way. This is absolutely ridiculous. And I... Listen, about half of the, the, the people in the Gaza Strip are apparently children. That is – it's, it's horrible. And I, I can imagine the turmoil and devastation that they are facing. But the fact of the matter is this is a full-on war. And I believe from everything I've read, not just now but through history in the past decades, that when Israel does a strike, they're not targeting Civilians. The problem is, is Hamas. They put weapons caches. They put um, uh, headquarters. They put military establishments directly in the line of the civilian population. They put them under hospitals. They put them next to schools. This is. They are trying to play the game against us. They are trying to use the rules of war, which is a real thing, against us. There's going to be collateral damage. If you look at World War One, World War Two, Korea, Afghanistan, there's always collateral damage. It's horrible, but that's the horrors of war. Like Remembrance Day is tomorrow, and we're going to remember those who fought in just wars. That's what Israel is doing right now. It's devastating that there's people, children who are going to be who, who will suffer for this. They will die. It is horrible. But until you get rid of these these cancers that are these terrorist organizations like Hamas, until they are absolutely wiped out, there's no peace for anyone. They are the culprits. Every answer goes back to that group. So Miss Michaels and her, I hate to use this term, but it's the only one that I can think of, her and her, her ilk of usefulness are doing nothing. They're doing nothing to use. Um, in this whole thing, they need to read a book. Well, it, it's a difficult situation for certain, and the uh, the lines are being hardened. Um, is there a, a fear or a concern here that in Israel's response to the horrors of uh, October the 7th that uh, uh, a bigger problem may be created? Absolutely. There's a, uh, that is an absolute possibility. But the alternative to that is Israel sits back and waits for the next terrorist attack where another 1,400 people will be butchered like it was out of a Saw movie. Uh, th- th- there's, there's not a lot of alternatives for this, organ- for, or for, for this country unless we just don't acknowledge its right to exist. And I just want to throw in one more quick thing about this. The Gaza Strip doesn't have one border. It has two. And the other border is with Egypt. So you have another country 
right next to it that is also a Muslim country that could also alleviate the suffering of the Gazans. But for some reason, everyone ignores that. The, the, the Egyptian country could take in or have open trade with the Palestinians in Gaza. That place could be like another Singapore. Gaza, if, if they wanted something, and I'm not talking about all the Gazan people, but I'm talking Hamas and the leadership, but unfortunately, approximately 40% of the, the population in Gaza supports Hamas. If they wanted, they could have a booming economy. They could have an amazing life. But they take all the, the, the money that is given to them, and they put it into weapons and tunnels. And their main focus, just as I read the, the, from their covenant, is the extermination and the elimination of Israel. Now, I'm not Jewish, so I don't have a bone in this, but I am a veteran. And I, I can tell you that it is a disgusting situation that's going on over there. But it's everyone seems to just want to— pardon my French, on Israel, when there's so many other parts of this that everyone seems to ignore. You have the Egyptians could, could help on the Gaza side, and you have the Jordanians who could help in the West Bank. Both of those countries, both Muslim countries, choose not to do it because of historical issues they've had with Palestinians. Not, a, not a, a relevant issue right now. So everyone keeps looking at Israel as Israel's the bad guy. They are literally just trying to survive. Anthony, I appreciate your call this morning. Uh, anybody who has anything to say uh, further on this, it's such a difficult and uh, complex uh, situation. I, I really appreciate your call. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. Bye-bye. And we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. We are back on VOCM Open Line. We're going to go now to Walter. You're on the air. Hello, Walter. Uh, hello, Linda. How are you? I'm good. And you? Good. The uh, reason I'm calling, I have a bit of a Newfoundland interest uh, World War II story you might find interesting. Um, I'm a retired uh, antique dealer and uh, picker, and we uh, travel Newfoundland and uh, buy all kinds of antiques, and we come across a lot of uh, military items. And uh, one in your neck of the woods out in the Bay Roberts area we came across one day. We were picking at a house, and... Uh, the house belonged to the son of a World War II vet who liked to collect things. And I noticed out back of his garage, I had a look. There was something covered with a tarpaulin, and I lifted up the tarp and looked. And here, uh, much to my surprise, was a World War II Merlin engine, the kind that you'd find. Now, I, I understand your dad is a pilot, so he might find this quite interesting. It's, a, it's the engine that was used in the Spitfire, the Hurricane, and the... Um, a couple of the bombers. Anyhow, we came across this engine, and uh, I was amazed at uh, finding it there. It's, it's the last thing you'd expect to find in it. And uh, talking to the gentleman, he explained to me it belonged to his father, who uh, collected it, and he told me the story. And, it, and it's a really neat story. Uh, apparently, during the Second World War, there was a squadron of hurricanes in St. John's. I forget the squadron number, but one day they were practicing. I think it was 1942 or 44. I'm not exactly sure which, but uh, they took off and they flew out to Hopal. They made a turn at Hopal and they were going to do a strafing practice run at Cape Spear. Now, this is information that I got from the archives after the fact. Anyhow, as they were turning at Hopal, uh, the, the engine faltered on uh, one of the hurricanes, and it crashed. The, the plane burned. It was a total loss. The pilot was killed. The pilot's name was Sergeant Pilot Ruggles, and he was from northern Ontario. I understand that his wingman that day is from Harbor Grace. I got this information from... Uh, 
uh, from Patrick Collins. Pat and I had a talk one day about it. I, I'm sure you probably know Patrick. And uh, Pat was telling me that he thinks it was a Dalbert. I think it was Parsons he said his name was. But anyhow, uh, this piqued my interest. So this uh, gentleman that I got the engine from, he uh, asked if he if I'd like to see where he got it from. So I yes, I did. He and I took his 4x4, four four and we drove back into the woods in the Hopal area. We were driving for about, oh, about almost an hour, and we got to this spot next to the pond, and there was still some wreckage out there. Now, not much. It was stuff that's been there. This... Uh, we did this about oh, six years ago, and uh, the, the uh, crash was back in 1942, so uh, as you can see, there wasn't too much left. Anyhow, uh, this prompted my interest, and I started tracking down the history of the plane and uh, the history of exactly what had gone on here. And uh, I found it quite interesting. I got the engine, and uh, I offered it to several organizations, the uh, legions and that kind of thing, but they didn't want it, and I can understand why, because uh, it's quite heavy. It, it weighed about 300 pounds, and it was awkward, but it was a nice piece of memorabilia. And so what I did was I, I took the pinion wheel off the engine, and I uh, put it on a plaque, and I gave it to the Bay Roberts Legion. I tried to get a hold of Captain uh, of uh, Sergeant Pilot uh, uh, Ruggles' family. Uh, I, I had where he was from in Ontario, and I tried to get a hold of them, but I couldn't locate them. I just wanted to tell them that I had it, and they were welcome to the engine if they wanted it. And uh, anyhow, I just thought I'd pass it on to you. It was kind of a neat link that uh, tied the Second World War to this area, and. Uh, uh, I find it quite interesting. And you never know, you know, what you're going to find in those uh, attics and sheds and that sort of oh. thing when uh, somebody has kept something that meant something to them and then, uh, you know, generations uh, pass. Um, uh, it's extraordinary. Uh, uh, we've come across some very interesting items. The Holy Grail, the item that we've been trying to track down, but we haven't been able to find one, is an Enigma uh, machine. We think there's one on Random Island somewhere, but we're not exactly sure. Is that right? And we only just had this chat just a few moments ago. Hmm? About the, igni- uh, the inib- uh, igni- Enigma. <laughs> It's not easy to say, is it? Um, About, uh, you know, that whole process of uh, decoding. It was a, uh, we think it's a three-wheel Enigma machine. It was a coding machine the Germans had on their ships. And uh, we had heard that there was one, but every time we tracked the story down, we got to a dead end. Uh, But it's uh, still fodder for the chase. We've uh, come across some of the things in Barnes. We came across once a uh, Hitler Youth dagger with the squastika on it. One of the interesting ones was a landing light from Argentia, and it was mounted on a plaque. And apparently, when the young pilots were just getting sent overseas, they'd land at Argentia before the flight over. And uh, there's a lot that didn't have that many hours in the air, and not, not, not that many on the ground either. And if they were turning on one of the taxiways, every now and then they took out one of the landing lights. So the rest of the crew would get together, they'd get the landing light, and they'd mount it, and they'd give it to the pilot to sort of a gift as a uh, token of uh, remembrance, so to speak. And we've come across those. We've had a couple of those. And uh, every now and then we find bayonets, uh, guns, things of that nature, things that the uh, that the veterans bring back from Germany. And uh, often... Um, 
<coughs> we'll offer them to the legions if they want to put it on, on display or something like that. There are a lot of pictures. We often come across pictures of battleships and things like that and things that they've served on. But uh, this thing with the uh, hurricane engine was quite interesting. It was a hurricane. Uh, it was a, a Merlin 20, a Merlin XX engine, which was uh, used on the uh, uh, the Mark One the Mark I Hurricane, which is what the squadron in St. John's had. And uh, anyhow, I just thought I'd pass that story on to you. There's, a, there's some stuff out here on the Avalon that's from World War II, and it's quite interesting stuff when you get your hands on it. Walter, I really appreciate your, uh, your call this morning. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. Already. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We'll see if we can find that Enigma machine. Uh, we're going to take a uh, short break. When we come back, we hope to speak with you. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And we are back. We're going now to Tom Badcock. You're on the air. Hello, Tom. Hello, Linda. It's been a long time since we had a chance. It has. It has. Uh, your caller a couple of uh, a couple of callers ago uh, about the issue in Israel. Uh, 50 years ago, that's where I was when the Egyptians and the Syrians were trying to kill the Israelis, uh, quite an issue, and here we go, 50 years later, rather again, and with regard to your last caller and the Enigma machine, I uh, I wrote a best-selling book called The Enigma, and while I was in the military, uh, as a cryptographer, the equipment we used was very similar to the German Enigma machine, uh, so all I can say to them was good luck with finding one. Uh, I think that would be tremendous if you could, because I would actually like to see it so that I could, uh, from my memory, compare it to the equipment I used when I was in the Air Force. Uh, I'm, I'm not calling because of that. I'm calling because of my total frustration with the government over a number of issues. Uh, we receive here at the Hub, of course, an operating grant from the government each year. Uh, the last couple of years, uh, instead of paying it up front, they pay it to us quarterly. First uh, of April, first of July, first of October. And I have no idea what's going on in government other than total, total incompetence or lack of concern or care. Uh, our payment, which was due the first of October, we haven't received it yet. Uh, the payment that was due three months ago was also a month and a half late, so such to the point whereby in order for me to be able to make my payroll here with the help, I, I used my own money to pay it until we did get the grant. Now, I've been dealing with Minister Osborne's office uh, to try and figure what was going on with this, and it comes right down to the finance department. And the reason they're using this time is something to do with some kind of a vendor thing. The, the wonderful lady at, at Minister Osborne's office, who's always been very helpful for this, she said, I don't understand it either. I don't understand why they simply can't make a payment to you when it's due. You know, we, I have staff, they want to get paid every couple of weeks like everybody else. Uh, I haven't been paid since I can't remember here at the Hub because we simply are in a position right now where we got no money to pay me. And here I am using my own money to pay my staff uh, and the staff at Daffodil Place. All the staff at Daffodil Place in the kitchen are my staff. And if I'm not getting my operating grant money, then 
uh, for no good reason. And if somebody could please explain it to me as to why when the budget comes down and it says this is your operating grant and we'll pay it to you quarterly, why still, uh, a day before Remembrance Day, we don't have our money? Uh, I can't understand that, Linda. I just don't understand it. It seems to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that that uh, government um, tried to address this type of situation some time ago. I know that uh, the community... Um a sector council had uh, raised this concern as well uh, that uh, groups need to have their money their funding secured so that they can set up their programming for the next year or two years or five years or whatever the case may be and they were looking for extensions to some of those things as opposed to a yearly thing more of a uh, you know four or five year kind of scenario and um, and to ensure that 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 money was secured so they can continue with their programming as opposed to just like waiting up and it used to be one time you used to have to wait right up until you know the uh, 11th hour so to speak uh, to get your funding or even know if you were going to survive well that's it still it still exists that way but as you know when government brings down its budget at the end of march every year it addresses those concerns and for all of us get our operating grants and they tell us okay your first payment is due the first of april the next one is due the first of july the next one the first of october and it's been a month and a half late for each payment. And nobody can give me a reason why we're not getting the money. It's not as if it wasn't approved by, by government. It's in the budget. It's approved all of us. for the same problem. But there's a systemic problem now with I don't give a care in government. As you know, I've been trying here at the Hub for the last uh, month and a half to get some affordable housing here. Uh, I went first to the city of St. John's to see what, I, what hoops I would have to go through. And uh, the wonderful lady down there was very helpful with me. I sent her my plans. I sent her all the stuff. She said she had to go to a meeting uh, to, you know, get the interim approval, see what was involved. She called me the next morning. I said, well, you're zoned for your second and third floors for housing, but not your first floor. But I'll get your boss to call, my boss to call you, and we'll work you through the process. I waited a week and a half, and she finally called me and said, did he call you? And I said, you're asking me if your boss called me. Can't you ask your boss? He, he called me the next day, and he said, one of my staff will contact you. That's been a week and a half ago now, so I haven't heard a word. When it comes to the housing issue itself, I basically had to embarrass the minister to come to the hub, which he did a week ago now, sat down, gave him a free meal. He said, oh, Tom, Tom, we'll look after you. We'll look after you. We'll make sure everything is fine. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with this. This is a great plan. This is a great place. This is right in line with what we want to do. I waited and waited and waited and waited. Two days ago, I got a call from Newfoundland Labrador Housing saying, Tom, uh, or Mr. Badcock, whatever she called, and she said, oh, we want to come over and see the place. I said, you want to see the place? I said, you've got the plans. I met with the CEO of Newfoundland Labrador Housing. The minister has seen it. Everybody has seen it. Use Google Maps and you'll bloody see it. Well, no, we want to come and see it. Okay, great. Come on, I'm here. No, uh, we can come over at 3 o'clock next Thursday. I said, what? 3 o'clock next Thursday. Uh, people living under my ramp and you're coming over next Thursday. And my comment basically was, what's the trouble? There's no sale on that day on Amazon, so you can get away from your office? 
Linda, I'm at the point right now where I'm totally, totally frustrated that they, they get on the media and they promote this housing thing and will not do a thing about it. They won't give us our money to keep us operating. They just placate us. And, and I, I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what to do. And hence my call to you this morning to see if I can't embarrass these people into doing their jobs. I'd like to know if, uh, I mean, you can't be the only group that is facing these kinds of challenges. There must be others out there. And I know I've heard over the years um, from people who uh, rely on um, uh, various types of uh, government funding to keep them uh, going over a certain period of time, whether it be uh, child care operations or uh, taxi services or whatever the case may be, and uh, always having to wait for those payments that they are, um, you know, uh, guaranteed. So I, I'd like to see if there's others out there who are yeah. facing similar kinds of frustrations. Yes, I'm hearing it from them, but, but, but we've got a systemic problem here that, that about across government, Linda, and I don't want to beat the heck out of this, but, you know, I've got, I got a four-year-old son who was in a class with 27 students, and yet when he was in daycare, the law says there could be only one childhood educator for every eight students, but yet when he goes to school, it's 27. And we got Minister Byrne out there promoting all this immigration, which is wonderful. And all these people coming in with no concern to where they're going to live, where they're going to go to school, where they're going to be a doctor, where they're going to be able to be able to go to the hospital or anything. So it's not only the fact that we have funding issues and the fact that they fail to contact us or do any of those kind of things. It's across government that they, they do things and they don't even consider the consequences of things. So I don't know what's happening to a cabinet meeting. I don't know what cabinet ministers are discussing when they go in and sit down because they're obviously not discussing problems such as, hey, we're not providing funding on a timely basis to our charities. Can anybody tell us why that is? You know, it's a simple question to ask. We're trying to address the issue of housing. And the Hub has got a proposal that everybody loves, but yet we keep putting them off and putting them off and putting them off and putting them off. And, and, you know, and as you can tell about the frustration in my voice, I'm frustrated. 10.30 last night, 10.30 last night, I get a text from a minister of government saying, oh, we're so sorry you're having problems, Tom. And I'd like to better tell you what my response would be, but David would be there be bleeping me out all the curse words. That 10.30 at night, a day before my payroll is due, he's telling me, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're having problems. You're not sorry, because if you were sorry, we wouldn't have these problems. So, again, I, I apologize, Linda, but... I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what to do. I, I just can't get their attention. And, and you, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. But I would be interested in Eric Mutter organization and see if they're having similar problems. Certainly. Uh, Tom, and before you go, uh, we have a listener who's reached out and asked me to ask you if you take donations of gently used walkers. Uh, we, of course, we have, I should say, dozens of them here. Uh, we are the only organization now that do that because as you probably are aware when people get out of the Miller Center they have to have certain uh, aids that they need in order for them to be released you know walkers and, and um, bathroom type facilities and all those things so we have we have a room here now filled and filled and uh, uh, we're starting to move them around to uh, so we get the space but uh, yes we do and if anybody needs anything like that 
for goodness sake, uh, you know, uh, call us and get us. As a matter of fact, again, and I know we'll get 90,000 calls about this thing, but about six months ago, somebody donated to us a $40,000 wheelchair, believe it or not. Wow. So, look, we, we will give that to somebody, first of all, who desperately needs it and knows how to operate it, because I certainly don't. Uh, but, yes, we will take donations of those things, and, again, we, we distribute those things throughout the community. That's why we're here. We're a charity. Uh, we support the community. We can only hope the government would support us. Tom Badcock, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. All righty. Bye-bye. We're going to go now to Gary Best. Hello, Gary. Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. I was listening this morning, and a gentleman came on and talked about Tommy Prince. Right. And uh, Tommy Prince was in my regiment, uh, Princess Patricia's clean on the infantry station of the Winnipeg. And I had opportunity to meet the man uh, a couple of times in 1972. And uh, he joined the Patricias in the Second World War, and he went to the Devil's Brigade in the United States as a contribution from Canada. And he was awarded the uh, Silver Star by the President of the United States. And he served also in the Korea War. And he told me himself about one of the patrols he went on by himself, and he captured 30 communists and, and brought him in on his own. He uh, was decorated by Canada. He was an Aboriginal. And when he got out of the military in 69, uh, his pension wasn't what everybody else got because he was Aboriginal. And he had PTSD, which was uh, unknown back then. We just called it shell shock. And he uh, self-medicated with alcohol. And uh, he basically lived in poverty for most of his life after he got out of the military. He even sold his medals to get money, and the regiment was able to get those medals back. And uh, he died in 77, and the regiment gave him a full military funeral in Winnipeg. And uh, I just wanted to phone that, that folks know he's the most decorated Canadian in history. Amazing. And you worked with him? The, uh, no, he retired in 69. I got in it in 70, but he lived in Winnipeg. And we met him downtown one day. We brought him back to the base, to the Junior Angst Club, and we kept him there for three days. <laughs> we brought him back to the quarters and hit him and kept him there for three days. And uh, before we went to Cyprus, we went down to a hotel down on Main Street called the Savoy Hotel, where we used to go. That was our watering hall. And he came there to see us off. And that, but uh, I spent oh, hours with him. He was telling stories of things that happened, stuff that we don't talk about when we're with civilians, but we talk about it together. Because you only really understand it. Absolutely, absolutely. So but he, he was, as the Aboriginal, the Aboriginals never got the same pensions as everybody else, and they just uh, went through a, a, a trying time. Okay, and PTSD for some of these people was really horrific, really horrific. And no supports by the sound of it. And no supports. You know, I know there's a lot of families out there that had grandparents that you said, 
well, dad wouldn't talk about it, and dad was kind of strict. Dad didn't laugh much and all that because they referred to it as shell shock, okay? But I think m- most families would have someone in there they'd say, yeah, he, he brought something back from the war that we didn't recognize. Or even know how to address. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. A lot of women even today say, you're not the man I married. You're somebody else. Yeah, and uh, you know we're starting to understand that now. We're tr- starting to understand these these impacts of of uh, situations and things that happen that uh, no human being should have to endure. Um, and how do you get back into society and be a functioning human after in, you know going through something like that? But what the most decorated Canadian in history? Just imagine. Yeah. Yeah, and like I said, we were downtown one day. We just bumped into him. We we seen pictures of him, and we went up, made ourselves known, and we brought him back to the base and uh, uh, treated them with respect. And he well he well earned it. Gary, so uh, happy you could give us your perspective on uh, on that um, sad but amazing story. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. You have a good day. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to uh, take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. And we are back on VOCM Open Line. We're going to go now to Dave. You're on the air. Hello, Dave. Hello. How are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Good. What's on your mind? Uh, I have a little story from Labrador uh, from World War One that uh, I think your listeners might be interested in. Uh, I'm originally from Northwest River, and... My grandparents were doctor and nurse in Northwest River during World War One, And uh, my grandfather did all the medicals for the young fellows uh, signing up to go overseas. And uh, towards the later st- stages of the war, Jim Gowdy and Charles Michelin from home decided they were going to join up. So he did their medicals, and then off they went. Uh, so they went to St. John's here for basic training. And uh, lucky for them, I guess the war ended while they were still in training, and they didn't get to go overseas. But by then it was November, and, uh, you know, they had to get themselves back home to Northwest River. But in those days, uh, there was no real communication or movement after uh, the close of navigation when the coast froze in. It was just dog teams then. Northwest River, you know, you didn't hear anything all winter unless the dog team mail came along, which might have been once or twice in the winter. So uh, they were told to get home as best they could. They made their way to the west coast of the island, I guess on the train, and then they, by boat they got as far as Battle Harbor. But uh, by then it was too late. The coast was frozen in, and uh, they got orders from St. John's to the Marconi station there to stay there till the spring, and then they could get home. Well, they were trappers. Uh, that one didn't appeal too much to them. So they uh, they made themselves snowshoes and toboggans, and they walked home uh, in company with a man named Steve McDonald, who left them at Cartwright. But um, Jim and Charles walked all the way to Northwest River. Uh, it's about 300 miles out around the coast uh, by, by that route. And uh, when they got home in March, it was the first anybody in Northwest River knew that World War One was over uh, about three months after the fact. And I have a, a letter that my grandmother wrote at the time about the celebration they had with a big bonfire down by the river. That's extraordinary. In my hometown. <laughs> yeah, something, isn't it? 
Yes, and it gives you that real, um, it it, it reminds you of just how isolated we all were at one time. And now everything is so instantaneous on the phone. We we forget that, you know, news and information traveled at a different type of rate and in a different kind of way. Imagine now, so they made their own, that they they weren't satisfied to spend the whole uh, season, I suppose, in Battle Harbor uh, before the the water routes uh, opened up. So they decided to to make their own snowshoes and toboggans and got to, so they you, you say they got to Cartwright first and then into Northwest River. That's that's the route they took. Yes, and uh, uh, later on after the war, I, I mean it, it cost them a fair amount of their, their own pocket. Uh, my, my grandfather wrote letters to them, and they did get a uh, letters to the military, and they did get a uh, a uh, some compensation a, a few years after the war, I think. And, um, yeah, that's the story. It's a story of just how isolated it was back uh, back in those days there and uh, what some of the fellows had to go through just to get home. <laughs> For sure. And although they didn't see action, they saw plenty of uh, a different kind of action. <laughs> Yes, you might you might look at it that way for sure. Wow, wow, that's an amazing yeah. story. I'm so glad you shared that with us. So Jim Gowdy and Charles Michelin. That's right. Uh, Jim Gowdy would later go on to marry uh, Elizabeth, and uh, she's the one who's, uh, I guess, commemorated in the uh, story, uh, song, uh, Woman of Labrador. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. 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 What a great story. Dave, I'm so glad you shared it with us. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. All righty. Bye-bye. Oops, turned myself off instead of uh, uh, hanging up on Dave. What an amazing story. We're going to go now to Mike. You're on the air. Hello, Mike. Hey, Linda. Good morning. How are you? Linda, I'm I'm great. It's so good to speak to you. What a fascinating program you have. What a diversity of topics. And that that little bit of tidbit of information and the one about the Spitfire engine and, and other things just adds so much to everybody's days in this time of... Of great turmoil, I guess, in other parts of the world. So, Linda, thank you for that. Thank you, program for that, and and BOCM for that as well. Uh, What motivated me to call, I guess, has been somewhat looked after by a a caller who who called in between when I made my original call and you were able to get back to me by Dave. Uh, And that was uh, Ms. Michael's uh, comments uh, about or uh, encouraging people uh, to, uh, uh, I guess, march for peace. Maybe that's not the right term, but a ceasefire at the very least in the Middle East. And uh, and God, if anybody is against calling for a ceasefire, a bombing that killed innocent people who have nothing to do, very limited things to do with what's going on there and, and just slaughtering them, anybody who is against that is is heartless, completely heartless. Uh, sadly, uh, it's not that black and white, shall we say. Oh, I forget the name of your caller, who was a former member of the Armed Forces, I believe himself, but brought out many of the points that actually I had been doing, and that, you know, the Hamas people are bred to hate. They're, they're bred to destroy and to wipe out, and just make sure it never exists again. Uh, Israel, or Jews, I guess, in deal. And uh, and they're supported in no small regards by huge amounts of money, that oil money usually from Iran and surrounding areas, who really don't want anything to be doing with the Palestinians 
other than to use them to de- to, to detract from you know their own issues. So it's a very very difficult situation. If you want to go out and you know protest and call for stop the bombing and this kind of stuff, you're talking to people who just had 1,400 people raped, murdered, butchered uh, by these same people who have been quietly living underneath uh, Palestinian uh, you know Palestinian grounds. It's a difficult, difficult situation that we find ourselves into if we end up uh, condemning one and and not, uh, you know, condemning the other. And I don't think that's right thing to do. It's such a a difficult situation fraught with so many complexities. Um, There is no, as you say, there is no clear black and white here. Um, Everybody's right and everybody's wrong. Uh, But we all know uh, what our... um, unacceptable actions um how they get resolved is a whole other issue and how do they get resolved yeah the innocents pay and uh sometimes i guess we have to be aware or or not to let ourselves become let ourselves become tools of one side or another to me it's very obvious that the uh hamas group and their funding agencies like iran and these places are directing substantial resources social media and other medias to get out you know this message that big bad israel is you know killing innocents when really it's not that simple and uh so if you get out there and say oh yeah israel stop this uh, it's, uh, it's very simplistic Linda, if I, if I may, I want to move on to a pro, to an interview uh, that uh, Jerry Lynn Mackey had this morning uh, on VOCM uh, prior to your show, where she interviewed the, the very delightful Mary Moylan of supporting our seniors. I don't know if you had a chance to hear that yourself. She's an amazing but, uh, woman, uh, for sure, uh, well, Mary Moylan. So is Jerry Lynn Mackey, by the way. <laughs> yeah, very, very much so. They borrowed that she's a very, very good interviewer, and she uh, makes you feel very comfortable with her. With her. I haven't had a whole lot of experience with Jerry Lynn Mackey, but uh, she did a masterful job this morning with Mary Moylan. Uh, but I, I guess the thing is that Mary Moylan, Moylan and supporting our seniors – and Mary Martin should not be left out days to two Marys uh, who really founded supporting our seniors, I think, pre-COVID and then took the hits that COVID gave so many people that, you know, slowed them down quite a bit. They, uh, they're advocating for those not who are, who are comfortable and well-off and were very limited or, you know, with a few complaints. Seniors don't, as Mary Moylan said in the interview, by nature they don't really complain. They don't get out there, they're embarrassed by it. They find that, you know, that they find it a bit humiliating, frankly, to have to ask for money for food and medicine and eat, and so they don't do it. But this group speaks up for them. And uh, and so and they're self-funding. They buy their own coffee. Uh, and they, uh, they're they not funded by governments. They're sort of like Tom Badcock doing all the great work he's been doing just trying to survive in the trenches out there. Uh, I, I can't understand why they're doing that or not doing that for him. But uh, Jerry Lynn Mackey this morning was able to allow that seniors group, those people who need it, not just want it, but need it, the resources to be able to survive, to get their point out that, hey, this is all very good stuff, but it's really not helping us a whole lot of way, you know? 
So I want to, uh, I, w- I just want to commend. I'm sure it'll be on the website today, on the program website, for people who missed it will be able to replay it. It'll probably be on the VOCM site, I guess. Will it, Linda? At some point, I'm sure it will. Yeah. Yeah. So just uh, just to thank you to uh, to VOCM and to Darren Lindacki and to uh, the delightful Mary Moylan, a very very well spoken and very obviously well researched person who does such a great job at approaching her 80th year, I think she says proudly, um, that uh, she will not be coward. She will speak out for those who need to be spoken for. Thanks again, Linda. It's uh, great hearing your voice on the radio, as always. And uh, you have a great weekend. Mike Keogh, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye now. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, we are up to news time now with Brian Medor. This is VOCM Open Line. Now is your chance to give us a call. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. And we are back. We're going to go now to Tony. You're on the air. Hello, Tony. Yes, how are you? Good. Oh, that's good. I'm calling now. First of all, I want to uh, thank all the military and uh, our veterans for the service and their families. Cause, and what they got to live with after he comes home is just unbelievable. But uh, I want to hit on the, the announcement made, I think it was on the 6th of this month, uh, last week, or this week. Anyway, did Tom Alvin announced about the seniors. He announced about having these, and you got to have, uh, you got to have, you got to have, uh, Technicians, you are not technicians. You got to have dietitians. You got to have medical staff. I mean, you got to have all this. And, a lot of this is not going to come through. And we got four dietitians. We got four dietitians now. We're going to have twelve. And so, like, what are they going to do for the scene? I mean, a great announcement that became true, but they don't come true with anything. It's just announcement after announcement. I mean, they got they need physicians, but yet coming up two years before to get some of this on the go. So, I mean, by that time, it's going to be another election. So basically, they're not going to do anything. What they're doing, they've been doing this to be replaced and record. That's all they're doing, recording, which they a lot cheaper and putting somebody out there. And he's announcement after announcement, and they haven't come true. And what got me the other there last week, and I knew it was going to be an announcement coming for the seniors because the opposition leader, Mrs. Oppenheimer, brought it up. But 60% of the seniors out there can't afford to eat or pay their heat bill. And what got me is when Siobhan Cody got up, and said one of the things they're doing, they cut eight cents off the liter off gas and everybody else. But I mean, here they got seniors who can't afford to eat, can't afford to pay their bill, but yet they're going to, uh, they're going to big things, double gas prices, and then they knock it down by eight cents. If anybody had a character to be selling it in order to try to pay their bills, I mean, it's ridiculous. And yet they, yet here they are, uh, they complaining about the, you know, the carbon tax cut it, but yet they collected $35 million for carbon tax, and got said they spent it. They got to spend, give back to the people. I mean, so and they want to borrow 120 million dollars for our future. Why don't they give it to their seniors now? Not only seniors suffering, everybody's suffering, but our seniors especially. They got to cut back on their medication. They, well, they can't afford to buy groceries. I mean, if anybody was in the grocery store and see the price of everything, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And they're not doing a darn thing for for the people, and not knowing for the seniors. I mean, it's just unbelievable what's going on here and just just lip service after lip service i mean just oh it's going to be another two years down the road or sure probably call it election tomorrow or even next year i mean we're supposed to have one in may 25th that's a year and a half so i mean this is 
And the same thing I heard about uh, the federal government yesterday. Like I had NDP was on pounding his chest about we got uh, this no scab now, no scab later, Ruth Ron Strike. But once again, I drove a pound in the chest, and Seamus O'Regan, of course, was on there once again. And he was, they were saying about how they, you know, how this was great. But yet, it's not going after the bill is passed. It's still going to take 18 months after in order for to make this happen. And, you know, once again, it's going to be another election, which they won't be there in any way. But if they did, once again, it's like everything else they announced, then they canceled when they got in. So, I mean, this is all lip service for for the next election to me is that's coming up and they're just promising everybody everything and that same time like they when they got in 2015 they're going to turn all the government buildings into low-income houses for the people and so far eight years they built 13. so i mean this is what's going on here it's just unbelievable and they put a bill eight eight this year 850 and so far they got 11 built so I mean, this is the lip service that you get from this government. Look what you got there running. I mean, it's so mismanagement, everything here. I mean, you got Tom Osborne here, just announcement after announcement, nothing done. You got Jerry Jerry Byrne there. There's more air comes out of him, comes out of an air hose. And then you got Siobhan Cody there. That's just a number of few there that's like it. I mean, you got twenty and they'll be able to accuse the liberals of that's being intelligent because they haven't got a brain in their body. Honest to God, they do they don't use it. They uh, just don't they don't care about the people. They uh, really don't. All right, Tony, I, I appreciate your call. Thank you very much. All right. Okay. Have a good day. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, and we are going to go now to the consumer advocate for Newfoundland and Labrador, Dennis Brown. Hello, Dennis. Uh, good morning, Linda. How are you? I am good. How are you doing? Good. So I see Newfoundland Power has uh, made an application for two uh, rate hikes. So what are your thoughts? Uh, we got the application yesterday afternoon, and we're still studying the application. Uh, we put a team in place uh, of accountants and experts to look at these applications. They are complicated. Uh, but it seems to me that Newfoundland Power is doing very, very well. In their last quarter, ending on September 30th, they actually made $2.5 million dollars more than uh, the six pair for the uh, nine pair for the uh, for the previous quarter so uh, and electricity sales are up so um, why would they want to increase rates when they're getting such a profit margin do you think it's justified or is it too early to say um, Every time Newfoundland Power makes an application, a general rate application, uh, they always seek an increase. And uh, some of your listeners will recall that we had all this uh, three years ago. They were looking for a rate increase. Uh, they said initially, as they are saying today, that it's for their infrastructure, etc. But when we dug down to it, it was all about their profit. They were trying to increase uh, their rate of return. Um, ratepayers will know that we are already paying for Newfoundland Power's infrastructure. Over the last 20 years, ratepayers have paid $1.5 billion for Newfoundland Power's infrastructure. And when I say infrastructure, I mean everything from the pencils and paper clips they use in their offices to the trucks to the wires. Every cent is paid for by the ratepayers of the province. 
and they are entitled to that in law and also to a rate of return. So the question that always has to be asked is where is this increase going? And it looks to me at the outset that it's going to increase their profit margin, and that will be of a big concern for ratepayers. Ratepayers are struggling there right now. We're coming into the winter season. Heating costs become more relevant at that time. Even though this rate increase won't come into effect until next July if it's approved, um, ratepayers should justifiably be concerned because Newfoundland Power is already doing very, very, very well. And uh, I'm surprised, really, that Newfoundland Power is out there stating that they are looking for an increase to deal with their infrastructure because uh, that's a separate category entirely. Uh, right now, before the board, they have a uh, rate application for $115 million, all to deal with their expenses, their operating expenses, their infrastructure. And they have a board that's been uh, benevolent to Newfoundland Power. Um, in the last 20 years, the board has given Newfoundland Power every cent they have looked for in these particular applications and without any hearing. Now, um, I'm happy to report to ratepayers that, and I'm talking about switch now, I'm talking about their capital budget application, that the um, legislature um, uh, has approved a government bill, uh, which now requires, if we request it, uh, that the lieutenant governor and council, the cabinet, the government, can order a hearing into these capital budget applications because the board hasn't heard capital budget applications in 20 years. They have a loose hearing procedure, a paper hearing, they call it. If there's such a thing, it's an oxymoron, actually. How can you have a paper hearing? But it favors Newfoundland power, and it favors... Uh, the, uh, uh, and, and our inability to get deeply into these um, $115 million um, applications, capital budget applications. So the government now has uh, given us a new tool to use where we can go to the government uh, because the legislature seemed fit to change the act and uh, request that the government order a hearing into these uh, capital budget applications. That is a positive step for the ratepayers of the province. But I noted in... Uh, Sorry, Linda, go ahead. Yes, I was going to say, I noted in Newfoundland Power's uh, release yesterday about this application for uh, rate increases that uh, among the um, considerations in the application is establishing what they call a fair return on investment in the electricity system. So that uh, seems to suggest what you had just uh, mentioned. Uh, absolutely. That's their cold words for, we want to increase our profit. So they're looking for an increase in their rate of return at the same time when they just publish figures to show that they are doing so very well, making $2.5 million more uh, for the totality in this third quarter. That's what they made so far this year, $32 million. That's profit. That's what they're taking home. Um, 
when the previous year they only made thirty million. So that's not too bad a return, is it now, Linda? So uh, what do you make now of uh, this other issue? You released a, a news release on it yesterday concerning um, this whole uh, situation of uh, full public hearings. Yes, well, uh, that's what I uh, just addressed previously. That has to do with the annual capital budgets. Um, the board approved a very loose system for approving these capital budgets uh, nearly 20 years ago. And since that time, before that time, there was always a hearing. Since that time, there has been no public hearing on these capital budget applications, which are now, uh, when all this started 20 years ago, they had a $50 million capital budget. Today, their capital budget is $115 million. So it's gone up uh, substantially over the period. So... Uh, we always found that very, very difficult to deal with. It's, uh, you get to ask questions in writing, and they give you a re Newfoundland power, gives you a response in writing, and then the board goes only by the written record. So no one has to testify. We don't get to cross-examine on any of this. Uh, so we were quite frustrated by it, and uh, we requested uh, the provincial government to do something about it. So the provincial government has heard our request, and uh, the legislature has acted upon it. And now, uh, if we are looking for a hearing on these capital budgets, uh, we notify the government that a hearing is required, and then the government has the authority to order a hearing. So uh, we have uh, a new avenue, and we uh, can't be shut down by the board's unwillingness to hold a hearing on these matters. Consumer advocate Dennis Brown, I do appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Linda. And we assure ratepayers, the 274,000 Newfoundland Power ratepayers, that we were doing everything possible to ensure that this new application by Newfoundland Power to increase their rate of return uh, gets the same fate as the previous application three years ago uh, when uh, uh, they didn't end up with a cent. Dennis, thank you. Thank you. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to speak with the MHA for Labrador West, Jordan Brown. This is VOCM Open Line. Now is your chance to give us a call. And we are back. We are going to go now to the MHA for Labrador West, Jordan Brown. Hello, Jordan. Good day, Linda. Has winter started in your neck of the woods yet? I think we're at like 12 centimeters, 13 centimeters of snow on the ground now. and it's snowing right now. So, yeah, it, it's... It's in full swing here now. But in your case, uh, people in Labrador West get a little excited by that, I would imagine. Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I always say uh, winter is my favorite season, and that's why I, I live and I grew up here in Lab West. It's, it's just part of, it's part of the deal. You live in Labrador, you, most time, nine times out of ten, you enjoy the winter. Uh, and, and speaking of winter, uh, this is my second time now uh, asking for the provincial government to take the proportion, our proportion, our portion of the HST off home heating and all, all forms of home heating. So both residential electricity and fuel oils. Yeah, now, now we we just got off the phone with Dennis Brown. We see that Newfoundland Power is looking for a uh, a rate increase. I'm not sure if that will directly impact the people in Labrador West. You're on Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro, I imagine, right? Rates, but no, um, yeah, we're on CFL, Yeah, but uh, you know, it, it, it's just another example of um, I suppose you know the ordinary citizen is just sitting there trying to get by, and it seems like it's just coming from every direction. 
Absolutely. So we, we now that the federal government did put a pause on the carbon tax on fuel oils. So that's one thing, but that's only temporary. That's only for the next couple of years. But the, prior to 2015, we didn't pay HST on heating fuel oils in this province. It was only put on after the 2015 budget. So right now, more something that the actual government can do to assembly tomorrow. Sorry, Jordan, you're you're in a poor place there for your cell phone. You keep uh, darting in and out. Sorry, yeah, I'm in. I'm in love. So you know, you know, closer. Can you hear me better? Yeah, no, it's uh, it's not, it's worse if anything. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if there's a, another place you can get or on a landline, maybe. Oh, how about now? Can you hear me now? Oh, much better. There you go. All right, perfect. Stay, so, stay yeah, still. No. <laughs> stay still. Yeah. So no, I was just saying. Um, so right now, like we 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 never paid like only re- only last since 2015 that residents paid HST on fuel oils for heating, and so we like I've been asking since I'd say 2020. Why are we not taking that off as an option to remove, uh, you know, some of the costs from residents and actually save some money on heating? Because, you know, heating is not a luxury. It's a necessity. And right now we're seeing uh, costs on everything go through the roof. But this is something that the provincial government can absolutely do to actually help bring down costs for every single person possible by saving them some money on their heating bill. And what's the, the percentage we're charged now? Is it 15? It's, it's 15. Yeah. It's the full 15, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that would make a difference. Yeah, so uh, the provincial portion would be about 8%. So if we took that off, they save 8% on all your bills. And we, the only way we can get the full 15 is if we can get the federal government to agree to it as well. Uh, but we can at least try to save the provincial portion for residents of this province. And that's, not, that's and I'm not asking just for fuel oils. I'm also asking for residential electricity as well because there's a large portion of this province right now heats their home with residential electricity. Are there some difficulties in that, though, because of all the different ways in which people heat their homes? Well, absolutely. So we, we uh, actually, in 2022, uh, when we broke it down, uh, we broke down that, at, you know, the cost for uh, what we're asking for. And, you know, there's even, uh, if you buy your wood uh, from uh, from somebody who charges HSD, you, uh, you can also even have, uh, have this exemption you put on uh, the sale of firewood. Um, this is actually possible because it's just through your standard HST uh, that it, that this province can easily do it, remove their portion of the HST from forms of heating. But how do you determine that? And then how do you get into things like, and I'm just being playing devil's advocate here now, but how do you address things like, oh, well, what about the oil for my uh, chainsaw that I use to cut the wood? You know, all of those kinds of things. Oh, absolutely. That, or that, the that, gas that, 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 that uh, cost to get me there. Oh, obviously. But we're talking about the sales of goods from through registered HSD suppliers. So you're talking about, you're right, you, you know, talk about your Newfoundland Power, your Newfoundland Hydro, you know, uh, your oil from Harvey's. You know, we're talking about this point of sale of, of goods. So, you know, a registered HSD, someone who actually purchases it through someone who's registered with their uh, with their HSD number. This is what we're talking about. And this is a way that's how majority of people in this province get their heat. 
is through either Newfoundland Power, Newfoundland Hydro, or from the oil truck. And that's what we're talking about, is trying to save money for as many people as we possibly can um, in a way that it can easily be done to save people money in this province right now. This is what we're trying to do, is try to save as much people money as possible. I don't think any uh, many um, ordinary citizens are going to argue with that concept, but what has been uh, government or governments, the governments uh, uh, in plural, uh, response to that? Well, so far, so far, I have never gotten a direct answer from anybody. Um, every time I bring it up, they seem to ignore it. They don't want to talk about it, which is surprising because they love, love, love harping on the carbon tax and that. But when you actually talk about a tax they can actually fix, this provincial government can actually fix, they don't want to talk about it, which is absolutely surprising to me. Jordan, on another note before we go to news, because I need to ask you, <laughs> uh, Kane's Quest, you getting excited? I'm always excited for Kane's Quest. That, that, that's a loaded question there. I love Kane's Quest. I love the I, I love snowmobile racing. So um, you know that we're having a back-to-back year. <laughs> it's it's pretty exciting for me. Uh, unfortunately, last year didn't uh, go as planned, uh, but I'm still excited for this year. Can't wait. Absolutely, absolutely can't wait for this uh, this uh, this season. And fingers crossed, you're looking forward to a uh, more typical Labrador winter. Fingers crossed. I'm hoping, but you know, as we've seen the uh, uh, the ravaging effects of climate change, uh, you know, it's also affected one of my favorite sports. So you know, this is uh, it's hard to bear, but at the same time, I'm still excited, and I'm hoping that uh, we have a have a typical year this year. And any word on how the registration is going there? Uh, they reopened again to, to let some more teams who were interested in signing up at the last minute. So they did reopen. Um, there uh, for a brief period to actually uh, have uh, uh, some get some people that were you know kind of like they wanted to race but they weren't sure and then they had come back and asked so they opened up registration again so we're going to hopefully now have a have a full roster fabulous and i know it was there were some difficulties especially for teams that are coming from far distances to get here because that's a lot of money to raise in a short period of time so fingers crossed uh, we have a a really great race this year Oh, absolutely. Can't wait to see it. We can't wait to it. And I just, you know, it's one of those things that feels new with excitement. I love Kane's Quest and I love snowmobile race. Jordan Brown, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, Jordan Brown is the MHA for Labrador West. We're up to news time now with Brian Medore. Stay tuned for that. But when we come back, we hope to speak with you. We've had a, a really busy, rollicking show so far this morning, but the lines have loosened up. So now is your opportunity to give us a call. Here are the numbers. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And it's being described as a big day in Corner Brook, the uh, Western new Western Memorial Regional Hospital uh, finally completed. That feels like the never-ending story, <laughs> didn't it? Uh, anyway, um, a lot of people in the area, of course, applauding this uh, major milestone, as you just heard uh, from the mayor of Corner Brook. We're going back to Corner Brook now for a different kind of story. Uh, Greg Dinney, you're on the air. Hello, how's it going? I'm good, Greg. How are you? No, doing a lot better today. Oh, how so? Okay, so let's let's start from the beginning. What's going on? You're involved with a uh, you're with the Cornerbrook Fire Department, and yeah. uh, you're the chair of a of a local toy drive. What what was that toy drive all about? And what happened? Well, basically with the toy drive, I said we team we partner with uh, Salvation Army, and we help families and kids around in our neighborhood every year. We've been doing it for forty odd years. And every Christmas time, we get our toys, we get our cash donations from the city, and we get a bunch of toys together and, you know, pass out our hampers. And then, like, whatever we have left over, we keep in our building for next year and everything, right? So 
last year I got, or not last year last uh, week I got a call from the building owner where, we're, where we have our toy drive set up to and he told me to come down because we had a break in so we went down looked at it and it wasn't really what I had my mind and what I've seen were two different things right like uh, there was there's a lot of damage done to the building and the toys are just thrown around like our shelves we haven't had them stocked up on shelves were thrown everywhere toys were thrown everywhere it was just chaos and a lot of damage oh no um yeah so were police involved were you able to yeah well basically the police came down like i said like the owners of the building got the, the police came took their pictures and did their part of the investigation other than that that one day that i was there when it happened i don't know what's going on with the investigation yet more or less our concern right now is not catching those people you know yes it'd be nice to catch them and all that stuff but more or less now just get the toy drive ready and getting ready to do what we need to do this year right any idea when this may have occurred uh yeah they do have they don't they, we do know what weekend in the time period there's like a, a four-day window there that we're thinking it happened in everything and people were seen leaving the building so like i said i'm not sure what's going on on that side of it and everything right but even like to me like say if, if we do catch the people it's not like they're going to be able to replace the toys and everything that was damaged there so that's why we went on the radio yesterday with bay fm and uh, basically put the call it to the community to get a little bit of extra help and the response my phone's been off the hook for the last two days the response has been from one side of the island to the other and it's been amazing so were any of these toys that were um, uh, affected uh, salvageable? Like, what was the uh, level of damage there? Roughly, like, if uh, basically half the toys that we had saved there were damaged, or we were able to salvage a few more than I originally thought, just from the originally looking in. But once we got in there, started cleaning up, I'm just going to ballpark a figure. Like, if we had about $8,000 worth of toys there, half of that is gone. But we did save more than what we got and everything, right? So it's... We're still not bad for starting, but we're not up to where we normally are every year, right? But the response coming in the last two days, I have no doubt that we're going to be fine for this year doing the toy draws, if not better than we have other years. Wow, that's amazing. So, um, yeah. yeah, we've only got uh, just a little over a month before Christmas. Um, so the response has been good? The response has been awesome. Like, uh, just individuals in the community, businesses, there's stuff that's starting up now like say like uh, a lot of few local restaurants are going to join a uh, burger competition where they have a burger and at the end of the end of the uh, month or however long they put it on for there's going to be a vote and whatever the best burger is they get a little award so much portion from every burger goes towards the toy drive there's other businesses here that are just starting to collect from their own employees there's a food shop that's a dollar from every meal is going to be coming towards the toy drive it's just it's amazing what's going on here now and um, is there anything in particular you're looking for? Uh, I know in um, in past toy drives and similar kinds of things that, you know, you'll have lots of one thing and not enough of another. Is there anything in particular you're looking for? Uh, no, right now at this uh, the early stage, we're not. We're looking for all toys now just to replace what was gone and just new toys. So basically we service kids from basically newborns up to 12 years old. So any any toys in that na- neighborhood is good for us. Any, like, money donation, we'll fill in the the blank spots or whatever like the low spots afterwards but i guess as we get closer to christmas we do do more specific for certain age groups that we are low on everything and if anyone is planning on donating toys or money we usually like to have it in like after the first week or so of december because we'll start packing hampers around the 10th of december but now like say i pack hampers all the way up to 
New or Christmas Eve. I've packed hampers before on Christmas Eve, so toys any time of the year is great for us because we then we just put them in our building and keep them for next year. Anyone who wants to make a donation, how can they do so? Uh, well, they can drop out here at the fire station anytime, and uh, other you can get contact to me or just any firefighter here at the station. Drop drop down, you can drop your toys off. Donation if you want us to come pick it up, we can come pick it up, do a little bit of PR, a little photo, or whatever the person or the bit community wants to do. And I'm also in the process. I don't. I was hoping to have it done already, but I'm going to be setting up an email account for people if they want to do direct deposit to us. All right. Well, keep us up to date on all of that. And uh, when do you hope to start distributing these things? Uh, well, that's basically on the uh, Salvation Army. And everyone wants the Salvation Army gets their uh, their list of needy kids in or whatever. So they'll pass it on to us, and then we. We'll start packing the hampers. Like I said, that's usually the middle of December when we we start packing hampers, like the 10th, 12th, somewhere around there. So you've got some busy days ahead of you. Oh, yes, we do have busy days. But it's heartwarming, isn't it? Yes, it is. And like I said, like, there's so many people I've talked to over the last couple of days that just, like, they're disgusted with what happened and everything. But when you see the outpour of support from the community, it makes you feel really good. Uh, yeah, especially in light of something so terrible happening. So, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Every cloud has a silver lining. And uh, exactly. uh, in essence, people are good. Yeah, exactly. Right. You see the good in everybody now. Yeah, for sure. Well, Greg, yeah. so glad that you're getting this very positive response and that uh, Christmas is saved in Cornerbrook. <laughs> uh, yes, thanks for reaching out. Let me go on radio. All right. Thanks, Greg. All the best to you. Okay. Same to you. All righty. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, yeah, no heartwarming, especially after something so terrible happening uh, to see people, um, you know, stepping up and, and doing, um, you know, giving from their heart. Uh, good to see. We're going to take a very short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. We're in the last uh, 15 or so minutes of the show. We do have lines open. Now is your opportunity to give us a call. And with Remembrance Day happening tomorrow, if you have someone special in your life that you'd like to remember uh, or uh, just talk a little bit about uh, you know their service by all means now is your chance to do so here are the numbers and we had someone reach out to us uh, saying that um, they'd like to know why it costs three dollars for one can of pop uh, at a uh, store that they happen to pop into uh, very recently three dollars for a can of pop uh, well I guess a big part of that uh, depending on what it is and whether or not it has a certain sugar content is the uh, the sugar tax but also uh, I I suppose factored into that as well is the you know just this inflation uh but yeah it, it is extraordinary uh, little things like uh, bars now almost approaching that price you know over two dollars in some cases for a bar um you know those are small things let alone the cost of uh groceries and uh, nutritious food meats and the like uh, so uh, yeah where is it all going to end how is it going to um the bank of canada has put in all these measures of course that have made uh you know it contributed if you will, to the cost of living, but, but in uh, an attempt to um, quelch inflation. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, while we're seeing inflation rates drop in some sectors, groceries remains quite high. I think it's over 6%. Uh, anyway, I'm just going from memory now, so don't quote me on that. 
But I think uh, bottom line is if you walk through a grocery store today and uh, look through the aisles, it's getting tougher and tougher to make uh, economical decisions. And I myself have had to put things back on shelves or just walk right past them, things that I would normally pick up just simply because I refuse to pay the price that is being uh, asked of it. So um, any thoughts on that? Give us a call. We're going to go now to Daryl. You're on the air. Hi, Daryl. Well, hi, Linda. How are you today? Oh, good, Daryl. How are things in Gander? Uh, uh, sloppy snow, but other than that, it's all good. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one comment about today there, just to allude what you're saying about the groceries and uh, everybody's in the same boat and it's, it's not getting any uh, easier. Uh, hopefully, it will work its way out. Uh, hopefully, I mean, we can't keep going and going and uh, you know, we're we're going on bus, but uh, what I was going to talk about today is the Newfoundland uh, Power putting in a proposed uh, hike now, total 7%, uh, I think 1.5% and then 5.5%. And again, this is adding to the inflation. So how is inflation everything going to come down? Because they're saying they got their costs and so forth. But when you look at Newfoundland Hydro and Fortis, they're making record profits into the billions of dollars. Yet now they're they're looking for more money to bleed out to people. And it's bad enough now people are trying to pay their bills and survive and so forth. Uh, now this is happening. So now what's going to happen in the future? Well, you know, they're talking about going totally green energy uh, with all these uh, electric cars. Uh, that's going to put more demand on the system, which will require more maintenance. So what's going to happen to our hydro bills then? If this is any indication now. It will be just as bad what we're paying for fuel when you look at the whole picture. Yeah, and demand on uh, electricity is only going to go up as more and more people make that transition, especially uh, if they are able to uh, take advantage of some of the um, the programs to help them with that transition. So, um, you know, where does it all end? It, it's starting to get very frustrating, isn't it? Yeah, so I mean, the top mode now because uh, the, the cost of fuel and everything now, so put everybody with clean energy, uh, hydroelectric or electric vehicles. So now they're putting up 7% now because they're saying due to their costs alone, their overall uh, maintenance costs, whatever. So now if you start putting more demand on the grid, it's going to require more maintenance, more servicing. So it's going to get to the point you won't be able to afford your hydro bill because I can see where this is going to. So. We're, the, we're going to have to take a look at all this in general. Yes, we got to have, you know, we got to look at the environment, but yet we can't starve the people either and, and put them in the poorhouse altogether. It's bad enough how things are translating now. So now you've got this 7% increase on top of everything else. I mean, after all, this, this is all adding up. So, I mean, uh, we, we, we're going to have to look at the whole picture because a lot of the grids are not going to be able to handle all the electric vehicles because they're saying now a lot of them, you know, you're into blackouts. Not so much here. We're pretty good, but other provinces like Ontario or the states or whatever. So if you start putting more on the grid, you're going to have more and more serious problems. And, and this is what we got to look at. So, I mean, it's nice to go green or whatever the case may be, but at what cost? I mean, you're going to starve people, freeze people, or or whatever the case may be. So, you know, we're going to have to hit the reset button. We're going to have to take a really good hard look at, uh, you know, where we're going to for the future. Because if not, 
we're just heading for more trouble. And this is like a 7% now. And what's it going to be next few years? What's it going to be by 2030? You probably won't be able to afford to pay your light bill if this keeps going. Well, this is a process that uh, really should have been uh, started many, many years ago. Um, and because these transitions will take time. Now we're at a we're at a vital crux. Everybody acknowledges that, uh, you know, climate has uh, changed so dramatically over the last uh, few years, uh, accelerated by uh, greenhouse gases, that um, we're now at a crux where, you know, serious decisions have to be implemented and yet we're 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 far behind if you know what i'm saying so these are things that there should have been some foresight long before this and making these transitions and it's you know primarily i suppose governments that have been slow uh to doing that yeah, they're they're uh, they're slow as a snail, as the saying goes. But uh, we're way behind even when it comes to Europe and those places and all aspects like not only the energy but healthcare and whatever the case may be. So we're behind the cue ball in a lot of areas. But I mean, the, but this, uh, I mean, like yes, we're probably long overdue in a lot of regards. But in the same token here now, uh, I mean, what are we, uh, we going to do? You can't, you're going to start seeing increases and increases and increases. I mean, that's not going to balance out either. So, I mean, it's, it's just getting crazier all the time. So, uh, so uh, but when you look at Newfoundland Hydro and Fortis, they're making record profits. And, you know, and Fortis, you know, rightfully so, I suppose they're a private company. And if you can make profits, that's great. But why are you applying for increases when you're making profits? They're not losing. And this is what got to be looked at by the pub. And, and, you know, knowing that the government and everybody can start looking at it, they're making record profits, yet they're putting increases, increases, and increases. To me, it's corporate greed. That, that's how I look at it. Uh, Daryl, I do appreciate your time. Uh, take it easy out there if you happen to be out on the roads. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, drive with caution, no doubt about it. And, Linda, thank you very much for your time. And uh, all the best to you and the staff at VOCN and uh, VOCM, I mean, and your listening audience. Same to you. Thank you. All right. Take care and have a great long weekend. You too. Thank you. Bye bye. And, of course, uh, talking about the long weekend, of course, tomorrow is Remembrance Day and uh, expect to see um, um, ceremonies at uh, cenotaphs and uh, war memorials throughout the province as we remember those uh, who uh, paid the supreme sacrifice and those who are serving still. Uh, We have showers and flurries in many areas of the province in the forecast for tomorrow, so uh, please be careful. Be careful on the roads. You're going to see some uh, diversions and slowdowns in some areas because of the... um, uh, those uh, ceremonies which take place at 11 o'clock um, and it's going to be different in St. John's it's going to be at the um, Sergeant's Memorial this year as opposed to the National War Memorial which of course is uh, undergoing renovations there in the Duckworth Street uh, Water Street area of St. John's but many cenotaphs and war memorials right across the province do you plan on attending um, weather sometimes plays a factor in these uh, types of um, uh, 
attendance levels. Uh, so uh, I don't know. Uh, showers or flurries. Northwesterly winds, uh, 50 tomorrow in the forecast for St. John's, Metro, the Avalon, Clarenville, and the South Coast. So there's going to be that bitter raw wind along with the showers or flurries. So if you plan to attend, uh, make sure you're dressed for the occasion. Um, similar kinds of uh, situations. Southwest Coast is looking at the chance of flurries still with those northwesterlies. Not as strong, though. Um, uh, snow ending around lunchtime tomorrow through central west coast and northern peninsula. Again, those northwesterly winds uh, gusting to about uh, 30. Uh, in Labrador, Happy Valley Goose Bay, uh, sun and cloud, not too bad, but a wind chill of minus 10 with um, uh, very slight northwesterly winds there. And in Labrador West, uh, cloudy skies with some uh, light northwesterlies and a wind chill of minus 14. So dressed for the occasion, if you happen to be um, paying your respects or laying a wreath at um, at one of the many uh, war memorials or cenotaphs around the province. And we have so many beautiful ones uh, with lists of names of people who have paid the supreme sacrifice. And uh, before we go, I want to uh, just uh, remember somebody within my own family, uh, William Thomas Parsons of Salmon Cove, who uh, died at the tender age of 21 in 1917, wounded in the Battle of Cambrai in France, uh, had been sent to a field hospital in Le Trepore, where he later died of his injuries um, before being transferred to England and presumably back home, and it was just before Christmas. So he was on his way home when he succumbed to his injuries. I think it was a full two weeks after being injured. These are the people we're remembering, the many, many people and the many different walks of life and the life experiences that they all had. Um, so uh, remember those who uh, paid that price for um, what we enjoy today, um, uh, you know, as uh, difficult and muddled sometimes as it may be um, and uh, all of the things that we're facing um, it, just think of how it might be different uh, had these people not signed up and stepped forward and uh, played their part uh, so uh, think about that on Remembrance Day. Enjoy your long holiday weekend. The stores close tomorrow, so Monday is a holiday for many workplaces. Uh, things should be open on that day. It all depends. We'll keep you on top of all of that. Uh, and uh, do enjoy and stay safe. Thanks for listening, everyone. Um, Brian Callahan will be in for Back Talk this afternoon. Thanks, Brian, for stepping in for me. Really appreciate that. And uh, we'll be back on VOC open line on Tuesday. Do join us then. Uh, thanks for listening and have a great long holiday weekend.